0: Our text this morning is Amos chapter 7, the first nine verses. We are entering into what is probably the third and final stage of this book, as we have seen Amos reminding the people of God that the Lord does indeed bring judgment, and then he has reminded them that they have sins that are worthy of judgment, and now here We see the judgment coming, but not without attendant hope. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word, the word of the Lord is completely without error. It is completely sufficient, and it is completely authoritative. Amos chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray and ask for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you this morning that you have given to us your word. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would make it clear to us that your word would be a source of truth, a source of hope, a source of rebuke, that we might follow after the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking him in all that we do. And in all that we are, we ask all of this in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever had the experience of someone speaking to you and you think you know what they've said? And then later on you realize that it was really the exact opposite of what you thought. That you believed you listened attentively and maybe it was a communication error on your part or maybe it was on their part, but you had assumed something was going on when the exact opposite was trying to be communicated. This can happen very often. It seems to happen quite often with mothers and children. Somehow, as hard as we try to explain, children, if you don't do this by a certain time, there'll be a punishment that follows, that second part gets lost in the transmission. Or or my favorite, which is, if you complete this task, then we will go somewhere. Or you may have dessert. And somehow the hearing doesn't kick in until that second half. Where's my dessert? Why aren't we going out? Well, you know you didn't clean your room. You know you didn't feed the dog. You know you didn't clean the yard. Oh, but you didn't say that. You said we were going out. Now, this is humorous in a family, but it happens too with the people of God. You see, we oftentimes mishear what God is saying, or better yet, we don't hear all of what God is saying, and that can cause us no end of difficulties. It can cause us to either be complacent, as we've seen Israel in the book of Amos, or it can cause us to despair In reality, we need to hear the entirety of the message of God so that we are neither complacent nor hopeless. And that's what is going on here in these warning visions in Amos chapter 7. The Lord is speaking to Israel through Amos, and he is reminding Israel that he is a God of judgment. But at the same time, in the midst of that judgment, he is reminding his people that he is a God of mercy. And grace. And so this morning I would like us to see three things from this text. The first is the message of destruction that comes from Amos, the message of destruction. The second is the prayer for mercy that Amos offers up. And then the third is the test of the plumb line that God puts forward. A message of destruction. A prayer for mercy and a test of a plumb line. Something that we can learn from even this morning. Let's look first then at this message of destruction. You see it beginning here at chapter 7. The Lord God showed Amos a vision, he revealed to him that there is a disaster on the horizon. Now, we need to have the context of this vision. You need to remember that the day here is growing darker and darker for Israel. If we think back in our minds to Amos chapter 1, when Amos breathed a sermon of fire and brimstone and Israel was all too happy to hear it because it was about those people out there, the Edomites, the Philistines, the Ammonites, all of those other bad people, And then you remember in chapter 2, the circle of disaster started to come closer to home as Amos began to preach against Judah and against Israel and to then to describe Israel's guilt and their punishment in terms that are very vivid. He went on and on about how they were socially inept, how they perverted justice, how they abused the poor, how they were religiously wrong, how they sought other gods and sought to worship the Lord God as they saw fit so that they could get the things that they wanted. And these threats and these disasters are just on the horizon. But it's it's like if you can again recall in your mind's eye back in the days when storms were much more frequent here, how the sun didn't always shine and how the clouds started to roll in. And as they roll in and they get black, as they did yesterday, you look up and you say to yourself, something's coming. You can just tell. That's what's happening here. The skies are getting darker. Amos has exposed all of the false claims of security that Israel has made. Israel has said, we'll be fine Look at our prosperity. Look at our military. Look at our pedigree. The Lord has to love us. He has no choice but to love us. But the sky gets darker as their sins are pointed out. And now here we begin to see the Lord God speak. Now, this is not a coincidence that we see here in verse 1 the word Lord God. I would like you to make your, mind, your eye go down through those first few Verses of chapter 7. And perhaps if your Bible version, like mine, writes it, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, and then God, it will jump a bit off the page. But do you see how in chapter 7 he is called the Lord God in verse 1, in verse 2, twice in verse 4, again in verse 5, again in verse 6? Over and over again he is the Lord God. This is the name of the Lord that is sometimes translated the Sovereign Lord. It is two names of God put together to remind us specifically that God is sovereign, that God is in charge, that He is not just one of the gods. He is not just one being to be dealt with. He is the supreme sovereign being. He is indeed a covenant God, the I Am. But He is also The Lord, the King. This is the Lord who is now beginning to speak to Israel. And we will see this more and more in these last three chapters. As a matter of fact, in these last three chapters, this name of God will be used about twice as often as in the previous six. God wants us to understand that He is the one in control, that He is the one who is free. He's not dependent upon us. And this is important as we think about these visions of destruction, because we then begin to see a vision of total destruction on the horizon. Now, before we look at each of these two, we need to remember one thing. It seems so simple, but it's important. How do we know about these visions of destruction? And You say, well, Amos tells us. Well, how does Amos know? Have you thought about that? How does Amos know that destruction is on the horizon? The simple and correct answer is, God has revealed it to him. He has a reason for doing this. You see, God is not a God who pours out his wrath indiscriminately. He is not a God who destroys for the sake of destruction. He is a God who is holy and just And when his wrath comes upon those who rebel against him, there is a reason for it. And God wants us to know the reason. God wants us to repent. We will see in a few minutes. God is revealing this destruction and doing it in a way that is bold with highlighter. You see, there are two visions here. And there is a repetition that is intentional. There is a a doubling of this destructive vision. The first example is an example of locusts. There are locusts forming when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. Now, this is a vivid way of describing how complete the destruction is. It needs a little bit of explanation unless you know what a king's mowing is or a latter growth. But simply speaking... This is a growth of crops. There were typically two growing seasons, two uh, uh, gathering-in seasons in Israel. There was the early growth and the latter growth. And if the early growth was blighted by drought or by weather, there was always the latter growth to count on. It was the security blanket. If you didn't get enough to eat, if there wasn't enough in the early growing season, you could count on the latter season so much so that at the very beginning of the latter season is when the tax collectors went out. It would be like, for example, if tax day was not April 15th, but maybe December 15th, when everyone is just getting ready to spend all their money for the holidays, they've been saving up, they're ready to do things, and if the tax collector came by and said, you know what, I'm going to take the first bit of everything. Now, that wouldn't make The kid's very happy, would it, if 10% or 30% of your presents were simply whisked off? But you might say to yourself, well, at least I've got some left over. At least there's my increase to be had. But Amos says, no, you can't count on that. And again, to keep with our analogy, it would be as if you had saved up all of your money. You had bought the things that you needed And someone had come by and taken a piece, and before you could worry about whether there was enough left, someone else came by and took every single thing that was left. Nothing was left. Not a ribbon. Not a box. Not a crumb of food. That's the devastation here that Amos is talking about. This plague of locusts comes through, and survival is absolutely impossible. Now, I don't need to remind many of you what this looks like, Many of you have seen it. Some of you have lived it. It's what happens when a raging, out-of-control fire sweeps through an area and leaves nothing in its wake. This is devastating. It's disheartening. That's the kind of devastation here that Amos is talking about. It is First and foremost here, a natural disaster with locusts. But Amos makes clear to us that this is not something that is outside of God's control. The disaster itself, the timing of the disaster, that it is at the very worst time, this is the act of God. This is not an indiscriminate disaster. It is not destruction that is purposeless. It is actually formed by God. Do you see this in verse 1? God was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And this word formed here is a very instructive word. It's the same word that is used in Genesis 2 when God forms Adam from the dust of the earth. It's the same word that's used when the Lord speaks of him being the potter and us being the clay. God is forming these locusts for a purpose to do His will. He is the one who is causing this. It is a deliberate action. God is in control. Do you view God this way? You see, sometimes I think it's so simple and so easy to look at something like wildfires and to put it in one of two categories. Either it's something outside of God's control, or rather instead that God is seeking just simply to wreak his wrath upon everyone indiscriminately. When in reality, we need to see it as a part of God's plan. We see this even more in the second vision. This is a bit different. This is now a vision of fire. But this is not fire like we have seen. This is a supernatural fire. It is a destructive fire that cannot be stopped. You see what happens to it? It is a judgment by fire that devours the great deep. Now I want you to imagine in your mind's eye if you can a fire that would consume an ocean or a lake. I don't mean trees by the lake. I don't mean grassland that hasn't been rained on in three months. I mean one of the great lakes, or a great bay, or a great ocean filled with water. This fire is so powerful, it actually devours the water. It devours all of the land. It cannot be stopped. It is a judgment of God. It is a supernatural thing. It is directed specifically at Israel and its portion, And you can imagine, as Amos describes this, as he sees this, he says to himself, how can we possibly survive? The power is just just too great. And yet at the same time, he realizes that the punishment is so deserved. You see, he asks the Lord, please cease. But he does not say we don't deserve it. This is like children. After a fashion. Children who know that punishment is coming for something they've done. And they know they deserve it. They don't even bother with those kinds of arguments that say, well, I didn't understand what you wanted me to do. Or I tried as hard as I could to obey. No, they know they're caught red-handed. They have no opportunity of defense. That's where Israel is. This is a destruction that is in front of them. Well, what do we do then? Do we just simply sit back and wait for the wrath of God to roll over Israel and us? Amos doesn't. And this is something that I think is important for us to understand today because we can see great judgment on the horizon. We can see messages of destruction in terms of how our nation has gone from God's law. As we look out and see a society that, Embraces with glee the butchering of children. That calls perversion right. That rejoices in lying. Should we despair? Should we even, as some do, wish on the judgment on America for her sins? Should we wish judgment of God upon the church for its lackadaisical attitude, for its failure to hold God's word? No. We should not rejoice in seeing the punishment of God rain down. We should embrace with Amos instead the power of prayer. Amos offers up a prayer for mercy. Not once, but twice. Do you see it here? He says, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He says, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand he is so small. And not once, but twice, Amos tells us that God relented. So what is the power of prayer? Is the power of prayer its ability to pull on God's heartstrings? Is the power of prayer an opportunity to promise to do better and give us just one more chance? Is, is the power of prayer a way to trick God? No. The real power in prayer is pleading the relationship that God has with his people. And that is where hope is found, not just in Israel, but in Katy and Houston, Texas, today. You see, God loves his people. And the more that we realize that the reason God loves his people is because... Well, because he loves them. Really? Isn't that it? It's actually difficult for us to get our minds around because there really is no reason for God to love His people. None at all. Just like Israel, we have wandered astray. We are all like sheep who have wandered. We flout the authority of God. We do not listen to His word. We do not do what we ought. We do not understand the sacrifice that He has made. The reason God loves his people is based on who God is. And this goes all the way back to the explanation the Lord gave to Israel after the Exodus. He said in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, verse 7, He said, It is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to His fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. Now, this is great news. Because how God loves you, follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, is not dependent upon how good of a father you are, how excellent of a mother you are, how obedient of a kid you are, how much you have studied your Bible, how many verses you can repeat from memory, how well you can sing the hymns. No, God loves you because He has determined to set His love upon you. And so... There is also great hope if you are here this morning and you do not know the love of God. If you say to yourself, I'm not sure that I am close to God. I don't understand who Jesus is. Then there is hope for you because you don't need to buy a certain tie or wear a certain jacket or memorize a certain verse. You can come to the Lord Jesus Christ and find love and forgiveness because God sets His love upon the unlovable. You don't need to wash your face first. You don't need to tuck your shirt in. You don't need to tie your shoes. God sets his love on his people because of who he is. And so because of this, the power of prayer is found in God initiating prayer. Now that sounds odd, doesn't it? We think about prayer as something we must do. We must set aside quiet time. Sometimes we think we must even be in a certain position. We must kneel or we must stand or we must sit. We are the ones who need to remember our prayer list and we have paper lists, but now we have lists on our smartphones to remind us. We have lists on our computers and emails to remind us. We have pieces of paper tucked in our pockets. But in reality, it is God who initiates this prayer because Amos cries out to God, but why does he do so? It's because God revealed the vision. God initiated this prayer. He came to Amos and put Amos in a frame of mind for praying. We might even say and skirt on the edge that God's sovereignty requires our prayer. Not because God requires us to act or because God is helpless, but because God has so decreed that we are to be a praying people. He even speaks about this in terms of his prophecy being fulfilled. Do you remember the famous story of the birth of John the Baptist? you remember his mother Elizabeth had tried to conceive for years but had not been able to? And his father, Zechariah, was a praying man. He served in the temple. Do you also remember the very last book of the Bible, Malachi, and how God promised that he would send his messenger, the messenger of the covenant, the one who would go before the Messiah? It was a promise in God's sovereignty. And the announcement of John the Baptist was met where the Lord said to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, verse 13, Zechariah, I have fulfilled my prophecy. No, he hasn't. If you have a moment, turn to Luke chapter 1 and verse 13. The great fulfillment of this great prophecy of the one who would come before the Messiah. And the Lord says to Zechariah, I have heard your prayer. Do you see that? One of the most important events in all of the universe, foretold by God in his word. God is completely sovereign, completely in control. And he says to Zechariah, I have heard your prayer, Zechariah, for a son. God does His work through prayer. God answers prayer and God directs prayer. You see, part of praying properly is to see things from God's perspective. And Amos surely does here. Look at the first time he cries out in prayer. He says, "Oh Lord God, please forgive. You see, Amos has a pleading here. He doesn't just say, gimme, gimme, gimme. He recognizes that he and Israel are a sinful people. They are in need of forgiveness. And the only thing they can ask for from the Lord is not something they deserve, but something they do not deserve, forgiveness. There's no question here that they might deserve it. He also looks to God's power. He says, O Lord God, in verse 5, please cease. Cease. He recognizes that Israel is not only sinful, but it is weak. It's unable to stop these disasters. Only if the Lord stops will disaster be avoided. And we see here something that we need to remember as we pray. Something we need to remember as we take out our prayer sheets. And we think about expecting moms or ill friends or missionaries who need our prayers. We need to remember that God answers prayer. This is not a game. This is not something that we do because it's what all good Christians do. We do this because without it we have no hope, we have no life. We seek the Lord and God answers prayer, and not once but twice the Lord relented. Now, perhaps the only thing that could make us more uncomfortable than God not relenting and sending disaster is to hear and read that God relented. What does this mean? What does it mean for God to change his mind? To repent, as some translations have. To relent. Does this make God less than God? I thought we just said that he was the sovereign Lord, that he was the one who was in control. How can he let some guy like Amos change his eternal plan. What is going on here? Well, as often is the case, it's helpful to think about what this is not first. When God relents, first of all, it is not a trick. We should not be thinking about prayer as a means to trick God. Now, we may not think of that consciously, but how many times, beloved, Have you prayed to the Lord? Lord, if you just deliver me from this, I will never do that again. I will read my Bible every day, twice a day. I will help little old ladies across the street every week. I will be the nicest, kindest husband or wife you've ever seen. Right? You can't trick God into answering prayer. Don't do it. There's nothing wrong with seeking to have the Lord point you to praying more, reading your Bible more, being better and more biblical with others. But do not think for a moment that you can throw out these offerings and that God will see it and say, well, I really hope he comes through this time. I'll give him one more shot. Because that's what the Israelites were doing. They were going to these sacrifices. They were going to these places that had no meaning and they were offering up what they had expecting God to answer. That's not what prayer is about. That's not what God relenting is about. It's also not about our control and power. You see, there are some who view prayer as some kind of cosmic power that has a hold over God. And that if we pray, God must do what we want. You've seen it, haven't you? It's what takes the biblical way of praying in Jesus' name and turns it into a spiritual rabbit's foot I've prayed oh wait I forgot to say in Jesus name I better do that because if I don't God won't answer and if I do then he's required to give me that new job no there's no magic talisman we don't have any control over God this is a pagan notion this is how the pagans pray they pray hoping to get some kind of control over their God so that he'll do what they want Not so the living God. We have no control over Him. He does not submit to us. But thinking about God as relenting, as hearing and answering prayer, also corrects an entirely other set of problems. You see, we can be bound at times to see God as a harsh, unfeeling Lord. We can think that somehow... The world is run in a Christianized version of Greek mythology. Do you remember the three fates in Greek mythology? They were the only ones who had actually control over the Greek gods. And they were beings who would string out the length of a person's life. And they were in control One spun the thread of the life, the other measured, and the third cut. And there was no way around it. There was no appeal. There was no hope. Not even Zeus himself could go against the fates. And sometimes I think we look at the Lord that way. We think of his decrees and his sovereignty as occurring in some kind of vacuum or some kind of sterilized environment in which his love is not a part that somehow he has set up arbitrary barriers and which he cannot cross. And this is not true. You see, God loves his people. And nothing in the world is out of his control. We're also prone at times to think of God's wrath as being like our wrath. You know what I mean when I say that. If I use that word wrath, not anger or concern, This is the kind of thing that happens in the home. Maybe it doesn't happen often in your home or maybe you see it out in the workplace. It's where everything is fine until it's not. Everything is sweet and then there's an explosion. Everyone is civil until they're screaming at the top of their lungs at each other. This is not how God is. He's not fickle. He's not a God who thinks all of a sudden... I'm going to get really angry. You see, the wrath of God is a steady thing. He always burns against sin. His wrath is constant. He is not someone who is swayed by emotions one way or the other. So then what does this mean? How then does God repent? God repents when His love meets His wrath. You see, God has an eternal determination... An eternal decree to be holy and to uphold His law. But alongside that is an eternal determination to save His people. And that is why He sent His Son. You see, the wrath of God is answered by the love of God in Jesus Christ. And not in a way in which God winks at sin or looks the other way, a way in which his wrath is completely and utterly satisfied at his own cost. That is why God can relent, because his wrath has been satisfied. God himself, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, has paid the price God can love His people. God can love you, not because of who you are, not because of how God feels, not because He ignores His truth, but because of what the Lord Jesus Christ suffered for His people. There is a surety in that. It is something that is done and can never be undone. There is no changeableness. There is no fickleness. You see, really in reality... God is focused upon his people, and we can actually look at these disasters, and we can say that there is nothing, neither earthly disaster, nor spiritual supernatural disaster that can separate the people of God from their Lord. He is always in control. But then the question might come to us then, is there no judgment at all? Will God just consistently threaten and relent? Is God somehow like a bad parent who's always telling his children, you know, if you don't stop it right now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get angry. You, I, I can't even tell you how bad I'm going to punish you. But the punishment never comes? No. Because we see this here in the third vision. The vision of the plumb line. The test that God puts forward. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And he said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I love this answer from Amos. He says, A plumb line. What are you trying to tell me, Lord? <laughs> Sometimes that's how we should answer the Lord. Not try to find magic. I see a plumb line, Lord. What does it mean? You tell me. And this is a vision just as the previous visions had made the wrath of God visible, tangible, touchable, smellable. Right here, this is a tangible mark of the Lord's relationship with His people. You notice there's something different about this vision. There's no plea from Amos. There's no prayer. There's rather instead something different, a test. It is the test of this plumb line. The Lord will take the plumb line out in the midst of His people. It is a test that proves to Israel and to us that claiming something is one thing, but the reality is another. It's not enough to talk a good game, right? I could tell you all day long how I could take Michael Jordan down in a one-on-one game and how I can dunk without even really breaking a sweat. And I could talk all day long about it, but that does not make it so. And the way in which you would be aware of it is you would say, go ahead. There's the basketball hoop. Go ahead and dunk. Right? It would very quickly become obvious that my vertical leap is between four and six inches. But you see, this is true of the people of God. We can talk a good game of how spiritual we are and how sold out for the Lord we are and every cliche we want to use. But you see, there is a test. And that test is the plumb line. It is a perfect standard. Now, do you know what a plumb line is? A plumb line is the most basic and simple of measuring tools. It replaced. It was replaced by the... Um, by the measuring tools that tell you whether something is off balance or not. It was something that you, was a string with a weight on the end of it. And you would hold the string up, and the weight would make the string straight. And you could see what was a straight line. Nowadays, we don't use a plumb line. We instead use levels. We put them on the wall. But it's the same principle, right? If you know the wall is crooked because you put that level on there, and you see where the little bubble goes, and the bubble doesn't lie, and you can't make the you can't get in there and move the bubble. The bubble says what the bubble says. So it is with the plumb line. But I want you to notice something here. God takes this plumb line, and what is he standing next to? He's standing beside a wall built with a plumb line. Do you think that wall's straight? Yes, it is. How do we know? Because it was built with a plumb line. So on one level, God is going to test this wall, and he already knows the wall has passed the test. Do you know what that is? That's you, Christian. God is testing you today. And he can test you with all confidence because you have passed the test in Christ Jesus. You are already a straight wall. Now, you might have been built like me, a rickety shack about to fall down if somebody breathed too hard on it. But the Lord Jesus Christ has made you a new creation. He has straightened you out. He has created you anew after His image. Because you see, after all, Jesus here is the plumb line. He is the perfect standard. He is the the standard by which every wall in the city of God is built. And you should rejoice at this. You should rejoice at the tests that God brings your way because that shows that the Lord knows He has already worked a work In you. This testing is a test that God already knows you will pass. Lastly, that leads us to a challenge. The challenge is if we know that this is the case, then we must follow after God's word in holiness and obedience. You see, the Lord says in Leviticus 19 and reiterates to us in 1 Peter. He says, Be holy. Because I am holy. Not because it's good for you. Not because it's right even. But because he is holy. And you see, there is this great chain that goes, redemption, obedience. That God loves his people, so he redeems them, and the redeemed people are called to obey the Lord. It never goes the other way around. You don't obey so that God will love you and then God will redeem you. God loves us first. Why? We don't know. And then He redeems us. Then we are called to a life of obedience. This is the story of these three visions. This is the challenge for you today. To see the plumb line, it looks a lot like this to see God's standard, the Lord Jesus Christ set forth in His Word. And if we can pass that test, then we need not fear any disaster. We need not fear any judgment. And as a matter of fact, we are assured that the Lord will persevere and preserve and save. This is the challenge of visions that warn us. They warn us for a reason, that we are to seek the Lord, to honor, believe, and obey him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us by Amos, and we thank you, Lord, that you do indeed test us. We ask this morning, Lord, that you would Encourage us and equip us that we might obey your word. For it is only by your spirit, only by your grace, that we are able. Lord, bless us. Not for our sake, but for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen.